Work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from startups and businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Mocharco. This is George Mocharco, host of DC Entrepreneur. We're back for our third season, bringing you more great conversations with leading innovators and entrepreneurs. Today, I'm speaking with Nathan Suhu, who is the business development manager at Trulio. Trulio is a startup based out of Vancouver, and their main product, Global Gateway, helps businesses comply with global anti-money laundering, know your customers, and know your business requirements. Nathan is speaking to us remotely from the San Francisco Bay Area. Hi there. How's it going, George? Thanks for having me on. So I first heard of and connected with Trulio when I was attending the No Identity 2018 conference in Washington, D.C., and I was covering this as a local reporter. I had no idea that there was this huge identity management industry working behind the scenes. Uh, in fact, Travis Jure, the uh, CEO of One World Institute, described it this way. He said, in the best case scenario, identity is like plumbing. It's seamless and no one ever sees it. So there's this whole industry dedicated behind the scenes that's working to verify people's identity. And according to the statistics I saw, there, there's 1.1 billion people around the world who don't have identification, who cannot prove their identity. That's statistics according to the World Bank. Businesses have to find these ways to make sure that they abide by these anti-money laundering and know your customer rules. And your company, Trulio, has the ability to verify 4.5 billion people. That's a lot of people. And 250 million companies in over 100 countries. So can you just talk to me about the history of Trulio, uh, the problems that the company likes to solve, and who its customers are? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for us, truly, we're an identity verification company. And its core global gateway is really a marketplace to connect um, all those different data, data sources that you had mentioned um, to all the different customers that we have around the world, right? And these customers are typically guys like financial institutions, banks, payment companies, marketplaces, um, e-commerce companies. And we're facilitating a real-time transaction to verify a person or a business, typically for the purpose of compliance, risk and fraud, uh, anti-money laundering. Um, so that's at a high level kind of what we are today. And, you know, as far as the history, so we were actually founded in 2011 um, and we started working with fraud data, right? And so we did that very early on to work with e-commerce companies as we were building up a lot of the partnerships required to start making that move into AML KYC, right? And if you look at that market of data, it's always a very interesting market because the data has to be, you know, credible or reliable, right? And so we partner with credit bureaus, governments, um, telcos, like mobile network operators, utility companies, to get access to that consumer information, right? And you can imagine today how sensitive that information is. And, you know, quite frankly, it's always been sensitive. So building those relationships and partnerships was a huge piece um, that took a good portion of time for us to be able to do, um, using that for consumer verification and then building off of that um, and using that, you know, same type of relationship for now business verification. Um, so over the course of those seven years or so, um, we have raised, a little over $15 million in venture capital. Um, some of our investors include Blumberg Capital out here in the Valley. We've got uh, American Express Ventures, uh, 10-4 Holdings, BDC Capital up in uh, Canada. So we've got quite a few institutional investors that have gotten behind the idea. Um, and that really is to broaden financial inclusion, right? Um, so we're doing all this to help people. You know, you mentioned 
those 1.1 billion individuals, right? Helping those individuals access the financial services that you and I, you know, may take for granted today in some of the more developed areas. Um, so that's kind of what we're looking to do at, at a high level. That's kind of who we serve. Um, but yeah, I mean, looking at the goal forward thinking, um, you know, really going out and covering the rest of the world, right? That's, you know, kind of where our goal is to be able to have those individuals um, be verified in some way, because now they can access new things like financial products, financial services, um, startup services, right, like various marketplaces. And so that's where we see, you know, our goal, at least, in, in helping with uh, uh, Mr. Drahe's infrastructure and that plumbing. Um, so Global Gateway is your core product, and you mentioned that it works with real-time data. Tell me about how Global Gateway works with global business verification. What, what are you using to help uh, report on, say, an individual's identification? And, and how are you using automation and artificial intelligence to help customers gain access to this data? So I'll expand this to both consumer and the business verifications, um, since they're, they're heavily intertwined and they work really in the same you know, functional uh, way, right? Um, so I'll, I'll talk about a use case first, right? So if you think about Square. Right, and you think about uh, the readers that they provide to a uh, number of people around the world. Right, so now these small medium businesses can access uh, digital payments, right, or electronic forms of payment, and have their customers um, be able to transact that way. Right, and so instead of now having a, a physical storefront where you had a dedicated landline, you have this little device you can plug into your phone, and now street vendors, right, um, food trucks, they can all have these types of, of services. But in order to do that, Right. There needs to be some level of compliance. Right? And that's where we come in and help you know, indirectly power that ecosystem. Right? If you think about Square signing up one of these merchants or these users to, to have one of those Square readers and to be able to start taking those payments, they have to go through a KYC process. Right? And so imagine you're on the website. You're saying, hey, look, I'm going to put my name, my address, my date of birth because I want one of, uh, you know, one of these devices or start using the service. And you as the end user hit submit. Right. What's happening is we're in the background taking that information, passing it to various data partners around the world. So those data partners, you know, like I said, could be credit bureaus, telcos, government. Um, and we're saying, hey, look, um, can you verify this information, right? Here's the first name, the last name, the date of birth, the address. And they're coming back and saying yes or no on those various elements. And they're returning to us a binary response code. And that's important because we're not actually transferring the data off of that country's soil, right? And let's say you were in uh, in Germany, for example, right? So we're not actually moving that information cross-border. We're just asking for these indicators to come back, and then we take that information, right, roll it up into an overall rule for the, for the customer, right, and then pass back that verified or not verified response based on that logic. And so you as the end user, by the time your next web page loads, they've already determined whether or not you can be um, uh, transacting right away or if you have to go through an additional form of diligence, right? And so usually all of these guys have rapid customer acquisition needs, right? These customers of ours, they're looking for a solution that scales globally, right? And they're looking for something that's flexible, right? Because compliance rules vary country to country, they need something that they can program and, and work with really on, a, on varying levels, right? And that's where automation and AI can help with that. Um, just because historically it was done so manually, right? Like top 10 banks um, can have as many as you know, 10,000 compliance professionals. Right. And so, you know, we want to help not necessarily reduce all of that. Right. But be force multipliers and allow those compliance professionals to do something more abstract. Right. And so that's where we have things like um, AI systems to help uh, with matching different things like 
um, you know, John versus Jonathan, right? That's where we have AI coming in and helping things like um, if you have a business, right, we're going to help you select what business data you should be, you know, querying, right? Like the registration number. You don't know if it's a VAT number, if it's a federal ID, if it's something entirely different, right? We can help with some of that. And then finally, we can also help using AI to do things like UBOs, right, or ultimate beneficial owners. So when we verify uh, a business a lot of the time associated with a person, right, we also need to make sure that we know who's uh, a manager or a director or shareholder of the company, right? And so that's where we can help bring all that information back, right, parse all that data and provide it back to, you know, that customer of ours, that payment transmitter or that uh, money transfer service, whomever they may be. Um, and so that's where we have inserted those types of technologies into our solution. Uh, but yeah, so I know I just thrown a whole bunch of things at you, but I want to make sure that that all gets to marinate. Um, any specific questions on any piece of that? Yeah, specifically, where are you pulling the data from? Because I would imagine there's probably public records, right? But there's got to be other sources too. Uh, what are you connected to and, and how do you find the data for uh, your identification verification process? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we connect over 400 different data sources around the world today. Um, so I've laid out a few of them, right? So you've got credit bureaus, you've got government databases, you've got mobile network operators, telcos, utility companies. Uh, so we're pulling all from credible, reliable sources, right? Uh, we don't just go and scrape a bunch of information um, because you can't use that for KYC, right? Um, that's not something where you can say, hey, uh, I've taken this information from a scraped web page. And, and I'm using it to verify this person signing up, right? Unfortunately, that's not allowed. Um, so we have partnerships with all of these different data sources and we're accessing their APIs directly um, to, to do that match verification that I had talked about earlier, sending that information over and getting those responses back. Um, and so we pull from um, all of these, or most of these, I should say, uh, data sources are located in their host countries. So of the 100 or so countries we cover today, um, they'll all have some level of data that's listed uh, in, that, in that specific country or that sits and resides in that country that we're partnering with. Uh, so yeah, so that's how we're getting all that information. And as far as business data, uh, we're getting that from some public registries. Again, these are all contracted sources that we have formal partnerships with, um, but also government registries as well, right? And so these are the ones that have things like your incorporation documents, mm -hmm. right? Your um, shareholder list. Um, so we'll be getting those from data sources uh, as well directly there. Okay. And so what industries are using Global Gateway and your services? And, and what is their need specifically for accessing this type of data? Yeah, so we, we really cater to four primary verticals, right? So we've got your banks and financial institutions is one of them. Um, second, we've got payment companies. So things like merchant acquirers or payment transfer services or money transfer services. Um, and then the third, we've got marketplaces. So if you can imagine like... Uh, uh, an Airbnb or similar where money is passing peer-to-peer. -peer. Um, and then the fourth biggest one is going to be e-commerce. And so we've got a lot of individuals using us for things like risk mitigation or risk and fraud. And then we also have things like um, age verification, right? So using services that are age-restricted. Um, and so those are individuals. They all have fairly different use cases, um, but they all really reside around um, general KYC, like account KYC. Right, so you go to your bank every year, they ask you, hey, can you update this information? Very similar to that, right? There's a regulatory need um, that they have to, to do this KYC. And then they also use it upfront in the relationship with their customers as well. So things like onboarding, right? The first time you sign up for an account, uh, we may be there verifying that information to give them a go or no-go determination, 
right? Um, or sometimes transactional risk, right? You send, uh, you send a large wire, they may want to do that check at that point in time and make sure that um, the identity checks out, right? Or an e-commerce transaction, right? You have a large order going to a first-time sign-up in, um, you know, in maybe a, a new uh, address for them, right? So that may be something that they'll want to check again. Um, so yeah, so generally speaking, all around that compliance and, and risk and fraud. And, you know, and you kind of mentioned earlier talking about, you know, this market, right, and, and identity market as a whole, you know, being something that maybe has flown under the radar. Um, to us, it hasn't been, right? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a pretty sizable market. Um, you know, some people peg it at $15 billion, you know, give or take in, in a couple of years, 2021, or whatever the number they're using. That's the global market, right? It is the global market. But you look at it, right, and you think about, you know, a lot of the companies that we deal with at TrueView, right, are maybe North American based, but have a global presence, right? Um, the stripes of the world, right? Those are the folks that are expanding quite rapidly and are using us to expand into new countries rapidly with them. <clears throat> and so, so you look at that, right? And you look at it from a global perspective, you know, all these companies doing more cross-border transactions. Um, globalization as a whole seems to be doing its job. Um, and then you also have specific industries that are driving that growth, right? So compliance being a large portion of that, right? You see that with reg tech as a whole, uh, you know, kind of coming up through the ranks as an industry to, or an area focused to watch. And then you also have identity management as it relates to things like security, right? And I think those are the two largest drivers, you know, for that number. Um, so that's what I see as kind of making those, those large waves and helping this, you know, industry as a whole um, start to you know, kind of just be more front and center in the broader fintech circles. Right. So one of the things I noticed is that you have an API that, works with Trulio's Global Gateway. What kind of developers are working to build application integration for your services? And, and how can they work with your API to integrate this into their existing systems? Um, so our API is pretty versatile, right? But the use cases generally stay within the realm of, you know, what we were kind of talking about within compliance and risk. Um, but on a broader level, we noticed a lot of folks um, are using it to expand financial inclusion, right? Um, what does that mean? So sometimes folks are coming in and saying they want to use the API to be able to uh, expand their lending services, let's say, right? Um, you know, we go back and thinking about other parts of the world where you will have varying markets of, of data and accessibility um, and just quite frankly, you know, bankability, right? Like Africa, for example, right? You look at that market and they haven't really gone the same route that the U.S. did. You know, not everyone has a checking account. Um, not everyone has a credit card, but they do all have mobile phones. Right. And so they're all using that information or um, using those services and building on top of that to offer services and products that we may not even be thinking about here in, in North America. Right. And so I think our API is pretty versatile in that it can be used in really a number of different situations like that. It doesn't need to be for, you know, a bank and opening a new checking account, but it can be for things like um, telcos to verify their users, to then be able to um, offer financial products on top of their you know, phone subscriptions, for example. Right. And so there's a number of different types of use cases that even we're understanding now for, you know, for the first time. Um, but we actually just wrapped up a hackathon in San Francisco um, where teams had 36 hours to build an app using our API. And so we, had, we saw a ton of cool different ideas, right? Some of them, uh, or one of them in particular was uh, an electoral, uh, you know, more of like an electoral voting system on the blockchain and then using our solution to, to verify that identity. Um, but the one that we thought was interesting and the, the ultimate winner that we selected um, was a team that actually were using the verifications for homeless people 
um, to then get a, a crypto or a, a blockchain-based uh, food token. And instead of food stamps, now you have this electronically you know, verified record that they can use to go in and get this currency and now use it, right? Oh. Um, and so we thought that was fascinating, right? Um, and so we, we're, like I said, we're looking at all these different things. And, you know, yes, we have the use case of where our market may be today. Um, but I think there's a lot of, of flexibility into how it can be used, right? And I would, you know, encourage developers to, to check out our APIs. So you mentioned inclusion and financial inclusion specifically. Is that basically trying to get people that are out of the economy integrated into, you know, what the global uh, economy is like? Or is it really just to verify that they have some kind of documentation uh, officially to prove that they exist if they need to work with uh, other services? I think it's a combination of both, right? So when we talk about financial inclusion, um, like I said, it's kind of how we think about it here from, from our perspective, um, you know, being in kind of these well-developed data markets. But to your point, yes, um, there's no, <laughs> we can't verify somebody off data if the data doesn't exist, right? but how can we use some of the alternative forms of information, right? And so, um, you know, as I mentioned, things like self-reported data aren't exactly um, allowable for KYC today, right? Like you cannot use my social media profile, for example, um, for a KYC check. And that's because I'm over here popping that information in, right? So you can see how that may be a little unreliable. That being said, um, when you look at that in other parts of the world, um, social data or other forms of data may be perfectly acceptable to a certain degree, right? Um, when you have an area that hasn't really had great record keeping to begin with, they're more open to seeing how they can use different forms of information um, for these identification purposes, right? And that's where we want to sit on that forefront, on that cusp, and be able to um, help with that, right? If all of a sudden they come in and say, oh, okay, um, you have been paying your phone bill, and it's a even though it's a prepaid you know service where you have to walk into a store and you have to pay, um, you know how can we use some of that data that they may have from the carriers to do that information, right? Like we can do that today with postpaid, you know the services that you and I are familiar with in the U.S., um, you know with any of the large carriers because we give them our billing information, but that may not be the case around the world. Um, so how can we better help? in those situations, right? And I don't have a good answer now on how that works, but those are things that we're thinking about um, as it relates to you know, financial inclusion, right? Not just giving them access to services that, that you and I are able to, to use now, but how can we also think about um, you know, being with them and helping them form that identity, right? Um, so yeah, so a little bit of both, but uh, I think you know, these are things that are all in the future still. And I would imagine in some countries, you probably have people, say, for instance, if they've been in an area for a long time, they might think that they own a certain plot of land, but maybe the property rights aren't well documented in that country. So you have to go back and figure out what kind of records do exist in order to prove or verify that they do have some kind of claim to specific land. So it sounds like trying to use the data points that exist out there to help with this verification issue and problem. Um, in order to create kind of a full profile of the individuals or, or families that you're you're reporting on. Correct, correct. And I actually have a really anecdotal story, a quick digression, but I think you'll enjoy it. So um, so what I do at TrueView is as a business development manager, and I probably should have said this up front, but um, I work with our data partners and sourcing new data partners from around the world. So I've got a team of a team of folks that their full-time job is just doing, you know, this type of, of um, partnership, right? And so I remember I was looking at um, at some data in uh, Papua New Guinea. And I was saying, hey, this is kind of interesting country. Um, you know, we don't have it on the platform. It's, 
you know, something that I think would just kind of be interesting to see if we can find. And I was talking to some folks there um, and they said, hey, you know, we don't really have an API today that's available um, with this data. You know, we, our data is pretty small right now. Um, and I said, okay, well, that's, that's fine. How do you guys run KYC today in, in that country? Um, and so there's, there's, I guess the, the right way to say it, there's a group of, of more indigenous folks there. And he says, well, um, if we have to do any KYC, what we sometimes do is physically go to wherever this person says they are, talk to the village elder and say, does this person exist? And the village elder will say yes or no, right? And that's what they use for KYC. Uh -huh. And I thought that was awesome. We can't use it for truly you because we operate more in a real-time environment. But I thought that was really cool. <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting anecdote. Wow. That's, I mean, yeah, you have to have other people to, to verify that, that somebody's uh, part of that um, existing culture. Right. Yeah, that's, that's right. a really interesting story. Um, talk to me about some of the partnerships Trulio has right now. I know you're working with some of the credit bureaus, but what other partnerships do you have? Yeah, so a lot of the partnerships that we have today are around, at least in my purview of the world, are going to be around the data, right? So yeah, those partnerships mm -hmm. like, like the credit bureaus, um, like the network operators, right? Like the mobile network operators. So um, the telcos in different parts of the world where we can actually do things like, hey, we can check a name and a phone number, right? And that's actually mm -hmm. a really interesting, you know, fraud indicator, right? If you have all this information, like the billing data of a person, but then they have the wrong phone number, right? Or that number, you know, comes up as incorrect because, you know, the carriers can query that information, right? Um, you know, so someone putting in, you know, a, a totally different phone number than on the billing info because that's a burner phone that they're using trying to get the, you know, sign up for whatever service, that's a huge indicator of risk and fraud, right? Um, so those are different types of partnerships that we have. Uh, and then we also have some partnerships with um, uh, document authentication companies as well, right? And so part of the, you know, identity stack in, in Global Gateway is, yes, you can verify consumer using data. You can verify business using data. But you can also verify consumer using um, documents, right? So taking a picture of your driver's license, taking a picture of yourself, making that comparison between uh, those two images and then looking at security features on said documents is another you know supplemental way that the identification can just get stronger right and so we have some partnerships around there as well um, and then finally i think we also have some partnerships around onboarding um, onboarding types of, of products right so these guys typically will have relationships with some of these banks or larger financial institutions they, they provide you know uh, onboarding solutions like customer intelligence solutions, things like that, and then we're uh, helping them with some of the verification. Um, so yeah, so that's how we kind of slot into different areas. And those are just kind of some of the partnerships that we're working on today. Great, great. I know one of the topics of discussion at the No Identity Conference was GDPR, mm -hmm. and this is the European regulatory kind of uh, setup that. Um, basically impacted a lot of tech companies. Did GDPR affect Trulio in any way? Yeah. Oh, GDPR is very fun. Um, actually, it, it works a little bit. <laughs> um, so a lot okay. of GDPR, the, especially that pertains to us, is really around data transfer rules, right? Um, and so for us, because we're not actually moving the data off of the that host country's soil, like I mentioned earlier, right? Um, those rules don't apply in the same way that they would a company that's maybe using um, customer or moving customer information around, right? Because we're only getting the match indicators back, um, a lot of times that's typically not considered the same PII as if it would be, hey, send me back a name and address, right? Um, so a lot of our customers are asking us, how does this affect uh, you know, our relationship? It doesn't. A lot of our data partners were asking us, um, 
how that, uh, how that may affect the partnership, um, you know, really outside of a few clauses ensuring, you know, certain precautions are taken, it doesn't, right? Um, and then really any of the data transfers that we are sending out are always consented from the individual, right? So there's two key components that allow us to operate in the way we do. And one of them is that we have consent from the end user like you and I to verify this information against third parties. Um, and then the second would be um, that we are getting those yes/no responses back, those match/no match indicators. Um, so yeah, so from a GDPR standpoint, um, because we don't own the data like other kind of leg legacy providers, right? If you think about uh, some of the uh, bureaus out there, right? Their whole business model is predicated on owning that data, um, making you know changes, value-added changes, and then selling that, right? And so you know they have these infinite margins. For us, it's a little different, right? We don't own it. Right? We're just a conduit, and so our model relies on the data partners, right? They have costs, um, we, have, uh, we have a price, and we keep a little bit in the middle, right? And so, you know, our margins are a little different than, than a guy like Credit Bureau, but we don't take on that risk either of hosting that information and having issues with things like GDPR. Nathan, you have background working in venture capital. You had experience as an investment committee member at the UCLA VC fund. Talk to me about your background in venture capital and startups, because I know that you, you ran a fund of funds. Can you explain what that is and uh, some of the funds that you, you helped work with? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so yes, yeah, so I worked at a fund called Net Service Ventures, and so what we were doing is we were working with a lot of corporate um, LPs, so a lot of folks that are uh, foreign-based, and so this was before a lot of the corporate venture capital firms or the CVCs had come over here and established boots on the ground in the valley. Um, so I like to say that we were doing CVC before it was cool, right? Um, but what we were doing is helping them, one, get connected to Silicon Valley, but then two, also provide a lot of consulting services. Um, and working some of the biz dev efforts for them here in the Valley, um, and then also managing some funds that we would then deploy into uh, other funds. And so one example of that, uh, before my time, um, and I joined after that, but one of the funds we did do was Bullpen Capital, for example. Um, and so they are doing the direct investments while we are just looking at the information from a higher level up and then reporting that back to um, the corporation. And what we ended up seeing is a lot of the LPs that we had in our fund were always asking the same things and looking for, you know, roughly speaking, um, you know, the same kind of answers or same questions, asking the same questions, but in different ways, right? And so we said, hey, how can we take um, what we're doing here from a diligence perspective and, and informing them of this information uh, and then start productizing it with the methods? Uh, some of the tech that we were building, um, and the analyst team. And so that's how we started a company called Venture Scanner um, to help productize that. And so we spun that out, and that's actually where I was you know, flipping that around a little bit and putting my startup hat on and trying to run an early-stage company uh, with one of the partners at the fund and a few other folks. And so uh, that was a, an experience in itself, but simultaneously, I still kind of kept with the direct investment side working with the UCLA Venture Fund. And so uh, I sit on their investment committee and we were looking at, uh, broadly speaking, tech, uh, consumer tech, uh, life sciences, media and e-commerce companies uh, around the LA region trying to bridge that gap between Southern California here and Silicon Valley. Um, so that's my background in that. Uh, so I'm sure you've seen a lot of ups and downs <laughs> working in the the uh, the startup world. Just talk to me about how you've witnessed the startup roller coaster. I, I know you're a fan of Silicon Valley, the TV show on HBO that documents in in a humorous way what it's like to be a startup founder. How have you seen parallels in the real world with that? Yeah, I love that show. 
Um, you know, and I, I think I love it because a lot of aspects uh, hit closer to home than you would think, right? And so to your to your point on Startup Roller Coaster, right? Uh, oftentimes in the show and throughout the seasons, right? Uh, Pied Piper, which is the, the show's company that they follow, um, has huge ups and downs, right? And you think that's all manufactured drama, uh, but it, it's kind of not. It's, it's almost exactly how startups work. And I've seen that, you know, not only in um, companies that we've looked at at UCLA, companies that we've invested in at UCLA, um, but even at Truly You, right? There are times when, you know, things are going great. And there are also times when you have, you know, new issues, new fires to put out that you, you know, couldn't possibly have anticipated, right? And so when you see all of that come together, right, it does paint a picture that, you know, you don't really see until you get that operating experience um, deep in doing those things, right? And a lot of startups don't show that, right? A lot of startups you see from the press releases, from the news reports that, uh, that things are just growing fine. They're hitting this, uh, these crazy metrics and they're growing like crazy and they are. Um, but the thing is, there's a lot more execution behind it that doesn't typically get told, right? Um, the products that fail, right? The teams that, um, the teams that are, are repivoting or repurposing um, an entire go-to-market strategy, right? Things like that are just very, very um, nuanced, right? And they can, they can make or break a company. And so as you see Pied Piper and you see them, um, you know, through their uh, pivots, right, through their changes, and you think that's all fake, it, it really isn't. Um, and so I just, that's something that I think most people aren't as aware of, just not being in the space, you know, as, as close as, as other folks who have done a few startups have. I'm not saying that's me, but just saying from how I've seen things and, and friends that I've known that, that talk about this. Yeah, it's interesting to those of us that really haven't worked inside the startup world <laughs> to see um, kind of the process that goes on there. But uh, one of the things that I've noticed watching the show is that there is this kind of herd mentality when it comes to an investment. And all of a sudden you get investors like influx of investments and just some industry that, you know, obviously um, it has just only been discussed for maybe like a year or two years and, and, and starts to pick up. Say, for instance, like uh, Bitcoin and um, cryptocurrencies. Uh, blockchain, I think, has been something that you see a lot of this uh, kind of investment towards because people realize that there's, there's a lot of future there. Talk to me about kind of seeing that herd mentality over and over in investments. Yeah, so I think when you look at varying, um, you look at varying funds, right? And you think about how competitive it is in, in venture, right? Um, everyone's fighting for you know, a very small pool of deals and talent. Right. And so uh, when you have companies that are you know, starting up in new industries and someone picks up on it, right, like a well-established uh, brand, right, goes and makes an investment into, you know, maybe something that was a little more obscure. Uh, a lot of times you may see, you know, a lot more news articles, a lot more press releases, but a lot more investment activity as well. Right. And I think that goes into that herd mentality and, and more or less FOMO, right, fear of missing out. Um, if everyone's doing it right or if anyone if everyone is coming in and looking at the space and you're not, uh, LPs may ask you, why aren't you looking into space, right? Into varying components of AI, varying blockchain companies, right? Um, and you have a reason why, right? You also, you know, are looking at that brand, right? Or that brand that made the initial investment as maybe a point of validation as well, right? And so when you have guys coming in that are very well established, they make a few investments, other startups use that to drive up their valuation, Investors come in and because of, you know, that fear of missing out, pay those valuations and you just have this, you know, this, this vicious cycle almost, right? And so you'll see that a lot in, um, you know, the flavor of the week, right? Uh, you know, sometimes it's uh, last mile logistics, right? We had all those food delivery startups that were, uh, 
popping up, right? Then you have the Uber of everything, right? So the Uber of dry cleaning, the Uber of, you know, whatever that may be. And then you have, you know, space, right? And each of those, I'm sure they're valid investments, you know, within the respect that you go and do the diligence and you look through that and, and smart people, much smarter than I have done that. Um, but I'm sure you also have some folks that are, you know, investing because XYZ did the investment, right? And they don't want to be that guy that gets left behind, right? Because hindsight's always 2020. Um, you know, and so I think that comes in and you, you saw that in Silicon Valley, right? At the uh, end of season three, I think, when Bachman goes on this huge monologue of how he got, you know, a term sheet, right? By playing on that fear, it's, it's yes, it's, uh, it's dramatized, but again, you know, not so much. It happens just in a, in a different way sometimes. Uh, at least that's kind of what I've, what I've heard and, and seen just kind of watching various trends. Yeah. And, and I, I know like the ICO craze that just happened. I mean, clearly there was, there's a lot of activity and interest in what was happening with these initial coin offerings. And for about six months or so, you just heard everybody <laughs> talking about how they wanted to have an ICO. What happened here? Because I don't hear about those anymore. Is, is that like a case of some of this herd mentality? Yeah, regulation and scrutiny probably have a good, uh, a good chunk of it. Um, but yeah, you know, I think for, for a time being, right, it was, uh, it was hey, let's, let's go start a company instead of raising traditional venture. I'm going to go raise an ICO because, uh, uh, one, the, the money is a lot more accessible, right? I don't have to go through as much of the uh, accreditation in different parts of the world, right? But also just because uh, I think there's just, a lot of people jumping in, right? Bitcoin itself, right? We're starting to hit, you know, close to $20,000, right? And so you had all these people that were now jumping into Bitcoin. You had this new money flowing in and they wanted to do something with it, right? And these ICOs promised these huge returns, right? And so that's when you had all these companies that, you know, weren't even building anything. These were companies that were pre-seed or Genesis rounds um, that were raising, you know, $30 million, right, on their ICO. And they haven't even touched the line of code, right? They put a white paper out there, they put a website, they have a team, they get some advisors, uh, and, they were, and they were throwing that out there, right? And don't get me wrong, there were definitely good projects that were there. Um, I've done a few ICOs myself, and I, I really believe in them. Um, but, you know, you have, you know, potential bad actors, you know, in any type of situation like that. And I, I do think that the, you know, that herd mentality or that, you know, um, fear of missing out, right, drove a lot of that up and up and up, right? Um, people who weren't well-versed in, in some of these offerings, right, um, you know, may have been making investment decisions that, um, you know, that were not as sound as maybe what a professional investor would have done. We've seen a lot of things happen to major tech companies like Facebook just got a huge fine based on um, some of the, you know, the, the content that they were putting out there. Google, uh, for instance, just had like a big regulatory issue. Are we going to still see um, that there's any tech companies that become unicorns or have we kind of like reached peak tech right now? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, I, I'd say some will, uh, you, have, you have parties arguing both sides of that camp, right? And so I, I personally, uh, in, in my side, I think we're still going to see that growth continue, right? There's just so much money in venture capital right now, right? You have an unprecedented amount of money being raised, right? So you have these huge unprecedented funds. Lightspeed Ventures, I believe, raised a $1.8 billion fund or announced it in May. You have NEA, you know, launching, a, I think they did a $3.3 billion fund last year. Um, and that was an unprecedented size, right? And so you have all these, you know, mega funds that are raising tons and tons of money, SoftBank in their $100 billion fund, although granted that's probably more of a private equity fund. Um, but when you look at all that dry powder, they're going to have to deploy it somewhere, right? And they're going to have to use that capital in some way. Um, 
and everyone wants a piece of venture, right? Everyone wants a piece of these startups because, you know, there are the Ubers, there are the Airbnbs out in the world that are providing these massive returns. Um, and so people want a piece of that. So with all of that combined, right, that's where you see all these companies getting these billion dollar valuations. Investors have more money um, to give, right? And these companies are growing like crazy, right? And they want to sustain that growth rate. Um, so you have this combination now where you've got more and more companies hitting that billion dollar mark, which or decabillion or decaunicorn, right? Um, and so that's something that you know we're we're really just seeing and exploring. And uh, you know, is it frothy? Maybe a little bit, right? But um, you know, I'd be curious to see, you know see how far this goes. Yeah. Now, one thing you think um, is is not always the case that down rounds are not always the kiss of death. Can you explain why you think that? Yeah. So. You know, we looked at that in, uh, in just kind of in a, a broader setting, right? So down rounds typically are saying, hey, look, I'm, I'm getting or I'm, uh, I'm getting valued less than what I was valued at before, right? And so a lot of people take that as a negative signal, right? Um, but, you know, actually, so I do think it's bad to some degree, right? So sudden fundraising rounds or emergency fundraising rounds where there's, you know, no clear path to success. Um, yes, those are prob- problematic, right? Or maybe founders that haven't been as transparent as to why is this happening, you know, those can be, you know, those can be an issue. Um, but I also think there's a lot of good that can come out of it too, right? Um, a lot of the entrepreneurs that UCLA has invested in have been very transparent with their, um, their situation, right? Whether that's uh, the product situation, the financials, right? Whatever that is, and they've been very upfront about it. Um, if they ever had to raise a, uh, you know, a down round or anything like that, I think it would be very easy to make a justification why, you know, as long as there's, uh, you know, a path to success with this, right? And I think it's absolutely fine in some situations, right, where down rounds aren't necessarily a signal of, you know, death, it's a signal of a survival mechanism, right? It's something that they're going to have to do because they understand to make it better, things maybe have to get a little bit worse, right? Um, and so I think a lot of people just kind of look at that, you know, as a blanket and say, hey, uh, down round, they're clearly suffering, they're clearly failing. Um, but really, you go a little bit deeper and there's there's quite a few different things that can, you know, really make that determination in a much more uh, intricate level. Yeah. So what advice would you have for our entrepreneurs out there that are starting their own businesses that are founding or co-founding a startup right now? What, what kind of advice would you give them having been through uh, a lot of this in your career? Yeah, I'd say uh, a couple of things. I'd say um, test early, get market validation and feedback. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people that say, Hey, we want to get this product, right. We're going to build it for a year. Um, and, and then we're going to release it. I, I'd say, you know, maybe go the opposite approach and, uh, test early on, get feedback early on, find customers early on. Um, but also, you know, really think about how you want to execute, right? Cause I think execution is really the bulk of, of how uh, a company is, is going to live or die. Right. You know, and generally speaking, you, you think about things like the market you think about things like the current environment that make you know, this product, um, or what you think makes this product a success, you know, but also think, you know, who are the right people to do that? How are you going to go about that? Um, and also when to think about, um, you know, looking at your limitations as well, right? As a, as a founder and CEO, right? As an early stage company, not as much flexibility, but as you start growing, I think, I think that's a, a very important thing too, is uh, a good CEO is, is managing and leading folks that have skills that, that he or she may not have, right? Um, and so I think that's very important and something that you know, we've definitely seen a lot of good entrepreneurs at UCLA recognize early on, right? Uh, so yeah, so that's my best advice. So um, test early, you know, iterate quickly, 
but then also um, just kind of recognize limitations and, you know, really focus on that execution. Talk to me about how ideas are important for entrepreneurs, but how they really can't do anything without the right execution or proper execution. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, we've seen a lot of companies and you'll see a lot of clone companies that are out there, right? uh, Like I said, the Ubers for everything. Um, And you see a a lot of folks come up with great ideas, but but really that doesn't mean a whole lot, right? It's always the execution that comes behind it, right? And so if, you know, if you have folks, entrepreneurs that are listening to your show that say, hey, look, you know, what's the best piece of advice I can give? Um, It's just to go do it, right? To go out and test, um, try it out. Don't wait. Don't wait for that perfect idea. Um, Just go in and do something that you enjoy doing and see if, if there's viability behind it, right? Because a large portion of that iceberg is, yes, the idea may be at the top, but it's all about the execution underneath. And I think that's the, the one thing I like to leave with people that we talk to at, at UCLA, right, or folks that are first-time entrepreneurs that are asking questions. Um, if I can be of, of any help, um, it's usually by that one statement. It's just go try it, get data, um, iterate quickly, and then focus really on that execution piece. Um, but don't get too hung up on the idea. So just as a reminder, this is George Macharco, the host of DC Entrepreneur. I'm speaking with Nathan Suhu. He is the business development manager at Trulio. And, and Nathan, uh, what would you like to leave our listeners with? Um, and then tell them how they can get in touch with you and learn more about Trulio. Yeah, uh, I'd say if, uh, if anyone ever wants to talk more about identity space compliance, I will talk your head off. Um, or you can send a note to our, uh, to our general page, our info at Trulio, and I'm happy to respond and uh, and just, yeah, if there's anything that you guys want to do in terms of uh, identity verification, if there's any projects or any you know, partnership opportunities, uh, would love to chat with uh, anybody. Great. Well, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Great. Hey, thanks so much for having me, George. Thanks, Nathan. Subscribe to this podcast via iTunes and connect with us on our blog, dcentrepreneur.com. If you have any tips or ideas for stories, please tweet at us or message us on Facebook. Please tune in to our next episode. And thanks for listening.